on that note, I was born and raised in Dallas. I love my city. I am a homer. Uh, ironically, I'm one of our few homers in the crowd. Uh, but uh, after I graduated high school in Dallas, I went on to Washita Baptist University. It was a very transformative time in my life, and two uh, beautiful God-ordained things happened there. One, I met the love of my life, uh, which I will forever be indebted to God for sovereignly bringing us together uh, for uh, that broken road has really uh, kept me sane through the years. And then the other thing is uh, a a stirring in my soul to teach God's word. Um, I would be lying to you if I said I walked in freshman year just ready to preach. It was more of a uh, tug of war um, slash trench warfare of no, I don't want to. Yes, you need to. You like teaching, but I'm not worthy. That kind of stuff, which I still struggle with today. But the, the fire, the kindling that started um, around my sophomore year where God just put on my heart that like I love going into the Word of God. I love studying Scripture and I love, I love applying and teaching Scripture. Um, but I've always been scared to teach the Bible and not so much in a sphere that keeps me away but all, all, almost like a, a reverence that keeps me accountable. And through that reverent fear, I've developed a style. Um, y'all are very familiar with this style. Y'all hear it every week. But my style is I keep it simple. And that's simple in the sense of I don't dumb down complex theology just to keep it uh, dumbed down. More of it, I get to the root. I try to get to the root of something and make it um, as foundational as possible. I don't try to uh, overly academic or use really big words, mostly because I don't understand them, but most... Thanks. Uh, I tried to always know who I am. I know uh, the base foundations. I tried to grow it from there. And from those base foundations, then we can build upon more and more complex theology. And I also try to be real. Um, I try uh, to always make our knowledge tie to um, applicableness. Because I'm a huge believer in the time I saw in Bible college and then since then in in ministry. Uh, If what you know you can't uh, teach and if what you know you can't apply, then all of your knowledge is just a self-serving knowledge. And God has not called us to pour into his word purely for a self-serving knowledge. Yes, we need to dive in. Yes, we need a, a comprehensive understanding of our beliefs and our faith. That is that is first and foremost. But that's to build on to a knowledge that will, that will uh, spur you on to profess the word of God. Um, so in doing all that, one of the ways I've always kept myself sane in teaching is I try to stay specific. Um, that's why through uh, the teachings of this church, we've exegetically worked through the uh, the letter of James. We work and we stay specific. We work exegetically. We do line for line, passage by passage. But not today, not these last few weeks and not the weeks to come. We are doing a thematic study. Uh, today we are going to break into the first of three of our uh, mission phrases, which is love God. We believe that as a body of believers, we love God, we love others, and we make disciples. So today, we're going to dive in to what is it to love God? What is it to understand the love of God? What is it uh, to apply the love of God? And that is an overwhelming teaching uh, lesson for me. I know I sat in awe at my house of just, I remember just two weeks ago, starting the preparation for this kind of uh, lesson is just all. <laughs> It just it feels like you're overwhelmed. There's so many ways to go. There's so many different passages to study. Um, and if you haven't noticed, uh, which you will today, Scripture gets me hyped. 
Like I get really excited and today you may see me come out of my skin because there's no way for us to talk about the love of God with not, without starting at the beginning of that proclamation which is the Shema, which is Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9. This is Israel's mission statement. This was the beginning of a calling to you will always love your God, your Lord. Today I want us to do three things. I want us to find God. I want us to realize who God is. I want us to realize why we should love him and then I want to us to be able to respond and understanding what does that love look like how does that love play out in our day-to-day basis but for, before we go any further if you would stand with me we're going to read this out loud this is the Shema this is uh, the prayer of Israel the command of Moses we're going to start in verse 4 Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children, and you shall talk on them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them on your sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. Amen. You may be seated. Let me pray over us. God, I'm so thankful for the opportunity just to come together with people that I love, uh, people that I view as family, um, and just dive into your holy word. God, I pray that uh, for the next few minutes, we're able just to cast out any distractions. We're able just to solely focus on your words that we can dive into what your love looks like because your love is all-encompassing. Your love is all-inspiring and your love is where we find our salvation. God, I'm thankful um, for this group of believers, these sons and daughters that we're able to worship with the parish. You know, everything in your name. Amen. Okay, so... um, as we kind of built out our, our identity series and where we want to start as a staff and as a leadership team, and we talked about, okay, it's, it's, it's loving God. Everything has to start with loving God, and from there is where you build on. You can't, you can't do anything without understanding that love. You can't truly love others until you understand the person who invented love. You can't make disciples until you understand the person who has called you to make disciples. So um, as, as we did that, we just kept breaking down. So where do we come back to? We, everything that you see preached from this, uh, from this pulpit, every, every person that stands before you and they teach, they will always teach you deeply rooted in Scripture. And we, every time we were talking about loving God, we always came back to the Shema. And I wanted to understand that. I wanted us to break that down. So the Shema is a prayer. It is Israel's morning and evening prayer. It is Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5. Um, it is an all-encompassing view of what they are called to do. They are called to love their God. And it was it was understood that it was so important to this day, uh, practicing Jews still treat this as a morning and evening prayer. Um, I don't know about you. I, I, I'm a ritualistic person. I like routine. I like uh, getting in some kind of sequence and order. And that's where I find my peace. That's where I find a lot of uh, solace is when I am functioning on all cylinders, when I'm actually doing the things uh, that I'm scheduled to do. And I think uh, from an early onset in the nation of Israel, Moses understood that was a good way to keep the Israelites focused on what they need to be focused on. So in the morning, they were 
would read those scriptures. That would be one of the first things they did every morning. They would live their life under the lens of that. They would live their life under the, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love your Lord, your God, with all your heart, soul, and might. They, everything they did from the morning prayer until the evening, what all came through that focal point. God wanted them focused solely on those things. And through those things, they would live their life. And as they would wind down for the evening, they would readdress this same prayer. Because as, as we have seen a lot of times, at the end of the night is when we almost recharge our batteries. When everything, when we get the kids to bed, when we are done prepping for work, when we are having our, our quiet time or our alone time, we're able just to sit down and breathe and kind of reflect on the day and plan the next day. That's where we do a lot of introspective thought and introspective um, planning. And, and Moses knew that. And he said, we're also going to look through our planning. We're going to look through how we recharge ourselves through the same lens. I want you constantly focused on this scripture because of what it means. Let's break it down just word for word. So first, in verse 4, it says, Hear, O Israel. Hear means Shema. That's what Shema means. It also is translated into early Hebrew as listen and obey. For the, Israel, for the Israelites, for you to say hear and listen, that just wasn't a sense. They weren't calling you to open up your ears. They were calling you to let something reign over you. They wanted you to understand. And through understanding, they wanted you to obey. In this context, this translation of the word listen, there's no such thing is listening without obeying. Because if you didn't obey, it meant you didn't listen. If you're not fully understanding, this wasn't an optional thing. We'll see as we move past or move forward on the Shema, there's not maybes in here, and there's not you probably should. There's shalls here. There are you shall love God. So when you hear the hear, O Israel, that is a wake-up call. That is you saying, hey, sit up straight. I'm about to lay some knowledge on you. I want you, to, I want you to impact it into your heart. I don't want it just to go to one ear and it be some head knowledge. I want you to ingest it. I want you to let it rain over your life. And I want from everything you do flow forward through that lens. And then we move on to the Lord our God, the Lord is one. It's important that you understand in my Bible, and I believe in all ESVs, it says the Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. That is not the Lord of like their Lord and Master. Yes, Jesus and God is our Lord, but this is a direct translation to Yahweh, meaning I am or I will be. He's saying your God is the God of the Old Testament. Your God is the creator of all things things. Your God is the promised creator and sustainer. He is I am. We see it in Exodus 3 where Moses is called to God through the burning bush and he asks who am I supposed, who are you? He goes I am. I am Yahweh. He goes well who, who am I supposed to tell Israel, Israel and the Pharaoh who you are? He goes you tell them I am. I will be. I'm the one who always was. I am the one who is and will be forever. And then in verse 5, we move on to, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. He understands that it's a, it's a totality. It's an all-encompassing love. You can't just kind of love the Lord because the Lord is not just Yahweh. He is, he is one. And you see how those things were, you have to, you, those things have to play with each other. Your heart and your soul and your mind. There is one God. Moses understood a few things when he was playing out this kind of, of prayer. He was saying, one, Yahweh is one. And that's not really a shout out to a triune God. We're going to hit that out in a minute. But when he says the Lord is one, he's saying there's just one God. 
Moses understood that uh, Israel had just come from 400 years with the Egyptians. So they lived in a polytheistic society where there are God. They had no problem believing in a God. It was the fact that you had to make him one. There was no other God. And he also knew they were about to live among the Canaanites. And though that was another polyistic uh, society. So the problem that Moses knew for Israel is wasn't talking them into thinking that God was God. It was going to have to be, you have to understand there is no other God. Moses clearly believed that loyalty and obedience and love to the one true God was the only way of life. The One of the greatest threats in Israel, and you see this all throughout the Old Testament, is they forget that God is one. They forget that there is only one God. When their allegiances, when their loyalties get stretched in and they say, we believe you're God, but we're also going to pray to this calf. Or we believe you're God. We believe you're God. We believe that you can do all things, but we just don't know where we're going to get food. When you see that kind of uh, fracture in loyalty of God, that's when things start going sideways. And that sounds easy for us to look at Israel and see that, but that plays out in our life every day. I know for me, when my life gets upside down and I feel like I can't keep my head above water, I can almost always draw that back to the fact that I've forgotten that God is one. I know that God is creator, sustainer, and savior, but at the same time, I'm putting other things ahead of him. I am not solely focusing on the fact that he is Yahweh, that I will, and that he is one. And then moving on, uh, Moses understood that it had to be looked through the lens of an all-compassing, all-knowing love. It had to be heart, soul, and might. He had to love them. Not we, sh- we kind of could love him. It's we shall love him. That kind of love in the Bible is not a warm, fuzzy, emotional love. It's an an actionable love. When it says, hey, when you love something with your heart and with your soul and your mind, it's a way of saying there's nothing else. There should be nothing else left of you that doesn't have this all-pouring love from you. It's a kind of love that cannot be compartmentalized. And then moving on in in verse 7, it says, You shall teach them diligently to your children. And shall t- and talk with them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hands and you shall put as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on your doorpost of your house and on your gates. So there's three things. You have to teach them to your kids. You have to ornament your body and decorate your home. So what they're saying is an extension of your heart, soul, and mind. It's saying not only do you want this to encompass everything you do, we want you to make this an extension of how you live your everyday life. We want you to teach them to your children diligently. I don't know about you, but the fact how, how, kids, look, uh, how kids learn is a lot of singing and not a lot of talking. I know for my son, Asher, uh, it scares me to my core what he picks up on. And he very rarely picks on things, picks up on things from me telling him, but always on what I'm doing. It's, it's, a, it's a very uh, let me touch, let me see, let me do kind of learning. For an example, um, we are coffee drinkers in my house. Uh, I will be the first one to tell you that I was a naysayer on espresso at an early point in our marriage where I was like, I'm just going to drink black coffee. I don't need your, your foo-foo coffee. I don't need any of that. Uh, and my wife slowly but surely turned me on to a thing called Nespresso. I don't know if y'all have ever heard of that. It's pretty insane. But it's part of now my morning ritual. Um, but also part of our morning ritual is I'm getting that ready with Asher on my hip. 
So I'm getting it ready. I'm setting everything up. And at 18 months, um, he's already mad if he can't make the Nespresso. He's already understanding. I know where the pod goes. I know where we push down. I know the button. I know we're supposed to wait till it blinks. I know what we're supposed to be doing. I know in the morning routine of what Tim is doing, what my dad is doing before he takes me to my nanny, this is what we're doing. And Moses understood that. Moses said, you're going to be teaching your kids something. No matter what you do or how you live your life, you will be teaching your kids something. But you must diligently teach them this. You must teach them this in the morning. You must, you must teach this them in the evening. There's also a segment in there where we say you have to bind it on your hand. There was a point in my life where I took that literally. This is the shamal. Like you bind it on your hand and you put it as, a, as an ornament, as a decoration on your home. Because everything we do with how we love God has to be all-encompassing. So that is where we're always going to drive back to loving God. We're always going to understand that the Shema is our battle cry. It was for Israel's understanding that this is our Lord. He is our God. He is one. And we're going to love Him simply with all that we are. There is no moderation when it comes to loving God. But as we move forward with understanding loving God, I don't want to put the cart before the horse. I don't want us to say we should love God and not take an in-depth look of who God is. We serve a triune God. That's three in one. We serve the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. As God the Creator, we serve Yahweh, the I will be. As we see in Genesis 1-1, God spoke everything into being. God was there at the beginning. We can't even actually fathom the beginning. There was no beginning with God. He's omnipresent. He's omnipowerful. He's always been. That's what he says when I am Yahweh. I am who I am. I have always been here. But God spoke everything into being. Moving on to Genesis 3. In the world that God created, sin was entered and we were fractured from God. We were, we were set, we were pulled apart. And then we needed a Savior. And that's where you enter Christ Jesus, our Savior. He is the promised Messiah. We saw a few weeks ago in um, our study through Mark where Jesus asked Peter, Who do you say that I am? And Peter answers, You are Christ. Christ is translated to Messiah, the God's anointed. Jesus was the sacrificial lamb. He was the son of David. He was born uh, uh, a virgin birth. He lived a, a sinless life. And then he died on the cross in the, in the complete and other submission to God's authority. After he died on the cross, he rose three days later and is now sitting at the right hand of God. But most importantly, he will come back again. There is a second advent promise where God is going to come, where Christ is going to come back and make all things new. He will build a new Jerusalem. He will build a new Zion. Lastly, we also serve the Holy Spirit. He is the helper. He is the presence of God. He was also there in Genesis 1.1. We see where during the world was formless, the presence of God hovered over everything. That was the Holy Spirit. The Spirit is still at work today, pulling people to Christ and sustaining believers as they work for the gospel. So that is who God is. God is a triune God. He is three in one. He is creator, savior, and sustainer. Now I want to look at why we should love God. 
God is the creator of all things. He is sovereign over all things. I know it is the token uh, statement, but John 3.16 where he says, He loved the world so much that He gave His only Son that whosoever believe in Him will not perish but will have eternal life. We look in Romans 6.23 where we understand the, 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 the wages of sin is death. We deserved death. But through Christ's love uh, and in sending His Son, Jesus, as a Savior to earth, He gave us the opportunity for substitutional atonement. That means we all deserve death, but in our stead, Jesus uh, got on that cross. We deserved the righteous judgment and death of God, but instead we got the righteous love and life. The Holy Spirit is sustaining us. The Holy Spirit is helping us. And the Holy Spirit is helping us through progressive sanctification. So we have a God who loves us. We have a Savior who died for us. And we have a Spirit who walks alongside us each and every day. um, Pulling us to be better. Driving us. Giving us the desires and the yearnings to do uh, what God has called us to do. All of what I just said of why we love God is probably best uh, surmised in Ephesians 2, 1 through 6. And you were dead in your trespasses and sin. In which you once watched, following the courses of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, and the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in our passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of God and the mind, were by the nature of children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in His mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. So, by grace we have been saved. Meaning, we deserved that death. We deserved that ultimate uh, uh, that call for blood. But God, being rich in His mercy, gave His only Son that we would not know, we would not ever know the ultimate pangs of eternal death, but we would have the opportunity through salvation in Jesus Christ to go and be with our Creator and our Sustainer. So lastly, I want to talk about what does that love look like? So here's the last, the the biggest fallacy of this whole thing where we just kind of brush up on some theologies that we already know. I have a really good feeling that I haven't really broke the mold today. Like everything I have said, you probably had heard before or even had a very good working understanding of. But the thing is, and the reason we want to dive into this thematic look of who we are as a church is not so we can prep y'all for some tests coming down the road, but we want to get to a place where we can apply our knowledge for the greater kingdom of Jesus Christ. We want to be able to go out in the community and live out that faith. Because what I said last week is I believe a faith that you know and the faith that you understand is a faith that you live out. I believe that when you understand what Christ actually did for you, that is a knowledge that will spur you on to spread his name to the lost. I believe when you fully understand what your church is about and what your church believes in, that is a knowledge that forces you to bring the lost to church. That is a a knowledge that says, I want to talk about my church to the lost because I understand what we're about. I understand what we believe in. And I understand that without that knowledge, that person or that whole culture, that whole generation is lost. That it's not about knowledge itself, but it's knowledge and application. So today I want to say, what does loving God actually look like? Loving God, one, is just worshiping the creator that we know. 
He is the creator of all things. He is the sustainer of all things. And we must worship, worship Him as that. We also must accept Christ Jesus as our personal Savior. And I want you to stop me. I want you to stop right there. And I don't want us to move forward from that. Like, if Jesus Christ is not your Lord and Savior, I pray that you pull me aside today. You pull aside an elder or a parish team or anyone in this room and say, I have to get that right. Everything on from there, everything past that doesn't make a lot of sense if you're not calling Christ your Lord. So we worship the Creator. We accept Christ as our personal Savior. And then we pray and work and live through the Holy Spirit. We belong to Christ's body, which is the church. I'm literally preaching to the choir because if you're here, you're attending church. Um, But the whole idea of attending church has never really made a lot of sense. You don't attend or go to church. You are the church. You go to a building in which gives us a roof so when we worship and when we sing, it's not getting us too hot or too cold. This is a this is a beautiful building that has been a gift for us. It has been a partnership that was sovereign and brought to us by God so we would have a place to worship. But you don't go to church. You are the church. Loving God looks like being a part of His body, which is the church. We read God's Word. We, we pour over God's Word and then we pray through the Holy Spirit to God that we uh, we ingest His knowledge and we're able through the wisdom and understanding to live the life He has called us to live. There is nothing uh, sadder than understanding what you need to do but it not ingesting it. There's nothing uh, sadder or more tragic than reading the Shema and just thinking that's a really cool prayer that I, I should probably bring into my life here or there. Um, but uh, to properly apply it would just be I want to understand that I, I am I am lost. I need direction and I need a Savior. And through that, I, I take on the Shema where He is Lord. He is my Yahweh. He is the Messiah. He is the Creator. He is the Savior. He is one. I will put nothing in my life ahead of Him. And after that, the rest falls into place. I will, I will pray to Him. I will belong to the church. I will uh, work and, and pray through the Holy Spirit. Thank you for your time today. It's always an honor to stand before you and dive into Scripture.